I always thought it was Don DeLillo who said this, but it was Chuck Close who said, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. Hi, and welcome to the first episode in our Design Better series on the creative process. We are very excited to bring this to you. In this series, we're going beyond the confines of the typical design team to speak with some of the most creative people in the world, to learn how they approach collaboration, how they come up with innovative ideas, and overcome creative obstacles. We'll speak with guests like Ed Catmull, co-founder of Pixar, Autumn Durald Arkapaw, cinematographer for Loki and Wakanda Forever, and OK Go, one of the most creative bands in the world right now. Before we get there, though, we have a very special guest for you. You may have first heard of David Sedaris from his annual reading of the Santa Land Diaries on National Public Radio in the United States, a story that chronicles his misadventures as Crumpet the Holiday Elf, and it has been a holiday tradition for over 30 years. Or if you're like us, you may have gotten to know him from some of his early books like Naked. I still remember my dad reading passages from one of the essays, A Plague of Ticks, to my three brothers and me when I was home visiting from college way back in the 90s, and we were laughing so hard, he almost couldn't get through the essay. And if you've never heard of David Sedaris, wow, you are in for a real treat today. We chat with David about his acute powers of observation, how he prototypes his essays in front of live audiences, and whether fear exists in his creative process. Our opening music is from our friends at Brain.fm who use science and creativity to help you focus, rest, and be more productive. We'll share more about Brain.fm later in the show. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one-third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair. I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code DESIGNBETTER5. With Freehand by Envision, we've built a best-in-class visual collaboration platform used by thousands of enterprise customers, inclusively priced for the whole organization at 50% the cost of Miro and Mural, and now with the Intelligent Canvas allowing teams to maximize their impact by adding intelligence, automation, and connection to the canvas. Try Freehand by Envision today for free at freehandapp.com.
One quick announcement before we get started. We're continuing to explore new ways to help you learn, grow your career, hone your craft, and get inspired here at Design Better. And as part of that, we are bringing you three free AMAs, that stands for Ask Me Anything, with some amazing experts. The first one is coming up September 21st with Dan Mall, founder of Design System University. Dan's helped companies ranging from Eventbrite to Nike to United Airlines develop and deploy sustainable design systems. And he's gonna share what he's learned to help designers get the respect they deserve while scaling digital products sustainably. Next, on September 28th, our pal Judy Wirt, co-founder of Wirt & Co., who has been guiding careers of the top designers through ups and downs in the job market for decades. She's going to join us for an open discussion where you can ask questions, get career advice, some guidance, and get perspective on the challenging design and tech job landscape right now. And finally, on October 4th, Debbie Millen, host of Design Matters and Design Legend. She's the host of the first podcast about design and one of the longest running shows in the world, She's going to join us, and you'll have a chance to ask one of the best interviewers in the world what inspires her and what she's learned about creativity over the course of her career. To learn more and get all the details and sign up for free for these AMAs, go to dbtr.co slash AMA2023. That's dbtr.co slash AMA2023. One more time, dbtr.co slash AMA 2023. We hope to see you there. David Steris, thanks so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. We want to talk to you about your creative process. And maybe we could start with journaling slash diarying, if that is a word. Because I know that that's a, that's a central part to your process. Do you write in your diary daily or is it more than once a day? Uh, no, I carry a notebook around and I just take notes all day. And then in the morning, I look them over and I decide which is my headline story of the day. And then I start there. And I used to like number my paragraphs, right? And now I'm just more inclined to kind of start with whatever the headline is and just sort of make one long entry of it. What does the headline do for you? How does that, that help your process? Well, I guess I just begin with whatever seemed the most surprising to me or the most, uh, like yesterday morning, I started off in Atlanta and I was at the Four Seasons Hotel. I'm, I'm on a book tour and a car was supposed to take me to the airport at 745. So at 7.45, a big Conestoga wagon pulls up, you know, a big black Conestoga wagon, the kind three rows of seats. I never learned to drive, you know, the kind of car that I've been in since I started my tour. And then the bellman said to the driver, are you here for David? And he said, yes, David, going to the airport. So I get in the car and then 10 minutes later, somebody calls and he's like, where the fuck are you? <laughs> you know, and there was some other David. <laughs> and then the driver said, I'm coming, and he did a U-turn. And I said, it's not my fault. I said, you said you were here for a day and <laughs> going to the airport. He said, it's not my fault. And I said, well, it's not my fault either. 
and I accepted that it wasn't his fault and it wasn't my anyway it was just a mix-up so that was my headline story yesterday and then so I started writing about that and then I moved back and forwards and forwards in time and kind of recreated the day one other thing that you're just highly skilled at is just uh, observing people and in the design world you know that's often a part of our process is observing how people interact with products because if you talk to somebody and ask them how they do something they're often not going to tell you the truth they're actually they're going to tell you something that's kind of made up often so to really understand how somebody's you know maybe working with an app or a hardware product you actually have to observe them doing it do you have tips for observing people in their world you gotta stay off the phone <laughs> I mean, I can't remember the last time I rode an elevator and the person or persons with me weren't on the phone. You know, I don't know what they're doing. Or, you know, people get on an escalator and then they decide that's a good time to pull out their phones. I don't know. I, I just never, I'm on my phone. So that's part of it right there. Plus, it's my livelihood, right? To look for things that are striking for some reason. And if you're staring down at a phone, you're definitely not going to see anything, right? Except what's on your phone. And I understand there's a lot online, right? There's a whole world there, but you can go to that world anytime, I suppose, you know? But when you're out in the real world, I don't know. I just like being out at, you know, it's my livelihood. I'm trained at this point to always be searching to always be aware of what bothers me what i find irritating or what pleases me or i mean there was a woman and her daughter at breakfast this morning and the daughter was like 30 i have never seen anybody take so many pictures in my life they needed an intervention <laughs> and the waiter said well you know it's a special restaurant i said this is not a today thing this has been going on for a long time. They literally couldn't even eat. The food came and then they started photographing their food. And then they started photographing each other eating the food. They never, ever stopped photographing each other, this mother and daughter. And the restaurant was on the 60th floor. So, okay, you know, views and all that stuff. But it was as if one of them was going to be executed at the end of the meal. <laughs> and this is her last chance to remember the mother or the daughter, either one of them. I couldn't take my eyes off of them. And then I thought, oh, I wish I spoke Korean. And then I thought, it doesn't matter know exactly what they're saying. David, your book, Theft by Finding, is one of, one of my favorites because you can see your thought process and your observational skills and your voice develop over the course of a couple decades. And you talk about these observational skills being part of your livelihood, but it wasn't originally part of your livelihood. It was just sort of like who you are as a human being, a thing that you do. And so I wonder if you could, you know, just rewind back to those early days when you started writing in a diary in the 70s. Why did you start and how did it change as you continued with this practice over so many years? Well, I started keeping a diary just one day. Like if you had told me the day before that I was going to start doing it, I wouldn't have believed you. And the only reason I started was I was traveling across the country picking fruit and I didn't have an address, right? So I would live on different farms for short periods of time, but not long enough to get any mail there. 
So I was writing to my friends and my family, but I couldn't receive any mail. So I just started writing to myself. And I started one day and then I did it the next day. And I count on one hand the number of days that I've missed writing in my diary the past 20 years. I think it was more of a compulsion than anything else. It's Hmm. not like I thought that my life was so interesting. When I look at the very first months that I kept a diary, you know, the writing was okay. I was 20 years old. And then I decided that the writing was not interesting enough, right? So then it just became very phony, right? Like it was poetry written by someone who's never read poetry is what it was. It was just obnoxious. And, you know, I started reading a lot. And then I, you know, I started sounding like Joan Didion and like Raymond Carver. I could tell who I was reading at the time by reading my diary. And then eventually I just stumbled onto myself. Writing's changed a lot over the years. Like if I look at what I wrote this morning, it's not bad writing, right? Like there's a rhythm to it. It flows nicely. You know, it's a first draft. And I'm not saying it's terribly interesting. But it's not choppy. You know, it doesn't include a lot of unnecessary dialogue or unnecessary description. If I were to read my diary from 40 years ago, right? I mean, I have it on my computer. And if I were to read from 40 years ago and then read today, it's a massive improvement. But of course, it would be, you know, if it's something you've been doing every day for 40 years. I mean, when I started off, I was aware. I thought, wow, this sucks, you know? And then I thought, well, yeah, you've been doing it for two weeks. There's a, an honesty and confidence that started to develop, it seemed, when you were teaching at the Art Institute of Chicago, which, by the way, I also went there. It was a pretty formative experience for me. But was there something that happened in that time in teaching and you know observing other people writing, these students who were like total novices, where you started to figure some things out? Was it that time, or was it that you had just been at it for almost a decade that you started to develop your voice and confidence? I think the change was, that was around the time I started reading out loud. I started thinking of what I was writing. I started imagining it out loud, right? So that really changed the rhythm of the writing. So it wasn't as choppy as it had been earlier. Because if you try to read Let's say if you try to read a Raymond Carver story, you know, out loud, it's just so clunky. You know, all the sentences are sort of the same length and they're all super simple. Right. But if you're going to read them out loud, you kind of have to stitch three or four sentences together to create a rhythm. It's not there on the page. Whereas if you read Susan Orling, the rhythm of her sentences is so beautiful and so consistent. And also, you you always learn a lot from other people's mistakes. So when I was teaching, I was reading a lot of, well, really bad writing, you know. And I'm not blaming them. You know, maybe they were went to school for painting or maybe they went for fashion or something. And they were just taking my class to get a credit. But it did something to be around all that bad writing. I mean, it was first drafts of really just barely got out of high school. Yeah, Dave, you were talking about reading out loud, and it seems like a a big part of your process right now is doing that reading in front of an audience. And it it sort of feels a little bit like a stand-up comic, like Chris Rock might work at a smaller club for a while, test things out, kind of prototype them, 
and then go back and improve them. And you're not a stand-up comic, although you did tell a great joke when I saw you last about a, a woman and her son and his train set. <laughs> but I'm curious, you know, when did that become a part of your process, this, this idea of going in front of an audience, understanding what resonated with them? I was in college. I dropped out of college like when I was 19, and then I dropped back in when I was 27. And then I maybe when I was 28, I took a creative writing class at the Art Institute. And the teacher asked me to read something out loud. I'd written a short story, and she asked me to read it out loud. And when I read it out loud, she laughed, and I thought, I want to write things and read them out loud. I don't want to memorize them. I don't want to be an actor. I just want to read things off a page that I wrote. There was a kid in the class, and he was having like a happening at his loft. And he asked if I would read something. You know, different people were going to be doing things. And he asked if I would read something. And so I did. And and then somebody else said, well, I'm doing something. You know, I'm hosting a little event. Can you come and read something there? And so I just kept saying yes. I made sure that I read something new and different in each one of the readings. I've met so many people over the years who would just drag the same story around forever, you know, either because it worked, you know, so they would just read it time and time and time again, or else they would like take a writing workshop and the story they would submit would be something they'd written four years earlier in another writing workshop, you know, and the point is just to stack up the pages, you know, the point is just to write new things and learn from it and then move on and write something new, and write something new, and write something new. And I, I saw all of those readings as a really good, you know, it was a, an assignment. And the assignment was to write something new to this length. Because that was another thing I learned really quickly, is if someone says 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 20 minutes, they mean 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 20 minutes. You know, especially back then, I wasn't the only one on the bill. So if you're supposed to keep whatever you're doing to 10 minutes and you go 25, you're completely fucking over the people who are following you. So I learned a lot of really important lessons. I mean, I think I really learned everything I ever needed to know from reading out loud in Chicago. You know, like never let anybody see your papers. You know, poets would get up there and say the first of these 12 poems and you'd be in the audience you'd think fuck 12 poems <laughs> and then they'd read one and you'd say 11 more <laughs> <laughs> never put a number in people's heads like that you know yeah and it's the same with if they see a big stack of papers in your hands their hearts are going to sink because all anyone really wants to do is go home and forget that at your peril David, central to your process, so key piece is what we just discussed, the reading aloud, but the format of your work, the essay, is so essential. In fact, you know, if we were to kind of deconstruct your creative process, it would all fall apart without an essay format that, you know, these short stories where you can capture things, explore things, they're conducive to this reading format. You can test it out, you can modify it. It's not a grand novel that's got, you know, a, a ton of characters and so forth that has to lots of plot points to stitch together. Can you talk about how you landed on essay as your format and why that is the vehicle that makes the most sense for your creative process? 
Well, I was a fiction writer, and it never occurred to me to write an essay. And then when I was on radio, it was on Morning Edition, and then Morning Edition said it had to be nonfiction. And I'd never written an essay in my life. And I'm not a journalist, you know, and I knew that I didn't want to be one. So in terms of like going on assignments and, you know, I remember going to the cat show in New York City, right? I mean, that was one of the things NPR said, well, why don't you go to the cat show and write about that? But it just seemed wrong to me because I was at the cat show because they sent me, right? If I just wandered into the cat show, that would have been different. But I was there because somebody told me to go. So when I look back on my early, especially on the early things that I had on the radio, a lot of them were just, you know, I would pick a theme like smoking and I would find things in my diary that fit that theme because I didn't know what else to do. And it wasn't really until my second book, Naked, had essays in it. And God, when I look at that thing, it's like, oh, my God, everything in that book is not twice, but three times longer than it needs to be. And that's because I wasn't reading those things on stage, right? Like with my last book, every essay in the book was read on stage, I don't know, a minimum 30 times, right? And you read something that often, and then you think, you know, this paragraph's not worth the breath it takes, you know, to read it out loud. Or this has kind of already been said before. Or People are coughing here. That means if it was on the page, they'd be skimming. Good to know. Get rid of that. I remember I had a deadline for the book Naked, and I went to Yaddo, right? My editor got me into Yaddo, a writer's colony. And so a lot of that I wrote at Yaddo and never read out loud until after the book came out. And then I thought, yikes, how did I not know how bloated this is? So I, I just learned a lot just sort of on my feet and unfortunately in public. So you're learning from the audience, from the noises they make. I think in one of your essays, you said that a snore is your brother-in-law putting a gun to your head and pulling the trigger. You're dead now. So those types of things you learned of. But you also have an actual editor. So what part does the editor play in your process? You know, I, I just went to India and I wrote an essay about going and I went with my boyfriend, Hugh. And he signed us up for a slum tour, right? We were in Mumbai, and he signed us up for this a tour of the Dharavi slum, right? And so an editor will say, why did he do that? Because to my mind, I know Hugh, and of course that's what he would do. But the editor's like, well, the reader kind of needs to know here why he would do that. And it's easy, you know, it's, Hugh just likes to see how people live. So and that's fixed easily enough, right? It's good to have an editor point things out like that to say, this is unclear here, or this seems really inconsistent in everything you've written before now. Or, I mean, what I like about going on tour so much is that, I mean, there've been many times that my editor will say, I think you can cut this whole, you know, paragraph. And then I'll say, that's my biggest laugh in the entire story. Like, mm. it's not going anywhere. I like to learn as much as I can on my own in front of an audience and then give it to my editor. Because I'd like to give the editor, like, the I don't know, the 17th draft. And together we'll work on 17 through 20. But I'm not going to give the editor the third draft. 
because they're just going to be exhausted by the time we get to 17. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience, and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all, to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's CrashPlan.com slash DesignBetter, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. Workdays that are broken up by meetings make it so hard to be productive on actual work like design, writing, or planning, which require deep focus. We've recently figured out a hack, a great way to make that shift into the flow state that you need to be more productive. And it's changed the way that I work. It's called Brain.fm. Brain.fm has a team of cognitive scientists and composers collaborating to create an incredible library of music that contains patterns that shift your brain state. Their music is made with science and it's tested with science. You can actually see on EEGs, the brain is more stimulated and active when listening to their music, which helps you stay focused, go deeper into your work and get more done and in shorter periods of time. I recently had a big deadline looming where I had to work on a bunch of UI designs and I just had to sit still and stay focused for a long period of time. Brain.fm and my headphones, it helped me do that deep work longer than I would normally be able to do. I also use it when I go to sleep. It helps me get back to sleep when I wake up at night and I use it to help my son fall asleep at night as well. It's become an essential part of my day. If you have a fast ADHD brain, you can dial up the wave effect in the music to get extra stimulation to maintain focus. I truly love Brain.fm, and I hope that you'll check this out because I think it's going to help you do your work better. You can save 30% on a monthly subscription at Brain.fm slash Design Better. That's Brain.fm slash Design Better. Check it out. 
Methodical crafts coffee and tea for people of all kinds. They've been around and roasting for more than eight years, and they are certified coffee nerds. On their site, you'll find useful brewing guides that'll teach you how to turn your coffee brewing chore into a beloved ritual and really dial in that perfect cup. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Roaster's Choice subscription and start every day with a cup of methodical coffee. I have to say, without fail, every morning when I wake up, I am excited to drink their coffee because it is fantastic. Methodical's packaging, their website, the entire experience, it's just beautifully designed. Craft a cup that you'll love with Methodical Coffee by visiting methodicalcoffee.com and use our discount code DESIGNBETTER to get 10% off your first order of coffee or tea. That's methodicalcoffee.com. And now, back to the show. Are there rules of the road for what you will and won't write about? I mean, it seems like you're a collector of human experience, of all the experiences, and that's like what is so endearing and magical about your writing. I mean, you write about trauma, you write about family relationships. It seems like there's lots of things you're willing to explore without any fear. Are there rules of, of the road or agreements with people you love of, you know, I won't go there? Well, I mean, everybody has things they don't want people to know. I mean, we live in a time now where if you were going to have your driveway paved, right? And you could either have the driveway paved by someone who voted the same way you did or someone who didn't, you know, you'll go with the person who voted the same way you did. So, you know, there are certain people who have businesses who are like, they don't want it known where they stand politically, you know, and I get that because it affects their livelihood. I like to think I'm pretty good about what people want known or not. When it's something in my family, you know, I give it to people first and I say, is there anything you want me to change or get rid of? What doesn't really do to spring something on somebody, you know? I mean, every now and then you can't help it, you know, like, I mean, I wrote something about my next door neighbor growing up. So it's, I'm not in contact with my next door neighbor. I mean, they, the New Yorker tracked him down, but I couldn't find him beforehand and say, is this okay with you? I mean, I didn't say anything bad about him. I mean, I wrote something about this woman who I know, it's a problem in her family when her parents died, right? And so I just used her as an example of what can happen to a family when a parent dies. And she said, you know, would you please not put that in there? In case one of my brothers should ever read it, it might upset him. And I was surprised because I didn't think her brother would ever read it. But, you know, I said, sure, that's fine. Is there any point in your creative process where you're afraid? And, you know, whether that's, you know, publishing something or reading it for the first time or, or even earlier on, is fear involved anywhere? It's not fear, I think, so much as curiosity. I mean, I always feel like there has to be a way to write about everything. Right. There's got to be a way to write about this. So in my last book, I wrote this essay about this kid who lived in a village in Normandy where Hugh and I used to have a house. And he was maybe 12 years old when I met him. I don't know what had been going on in his life, but he was, uh, you know, he had a crush on me and he was very brazen. 
you know? And that essay could go wrong so many ways. But I kept insisting that there was a way to write about it that would protect him and be honest. And it's just getting really close to that wire, you know, but it's not touching the wire. It's just getting close to it. But it didn't make me afraid. It just, the challenge was exciting to me. And when I read it out loud the first time, there was a real sense of satisfaction because I think I succeeded in what it was that I was trying to do. I mean, sometimes you're just wrong. I mean, one time I was quoting Cody Fields, right? And Cody Fields was this comedian when I was growing up. If Cody Fields was on Mike Douglas or something or Johnny Carson, everybody came out of the bedrooms and gathered around the TV. And Tony Fields was fat and unattractive. And that was her whole act, how fat and unattractive she was, right? And everyone loved Tony Fields. So I was taking a bath a year ago and I'd listened to an old Tony Fields record when I was in the bathtub. And one of her bits, she said, just once, I'd like to see a newspaper headline, Tony Fields raped in a dark alley. And the audience at the time was just howled with laughter, right? An audience in 2022. Oh, my God. And I had to say to the audience, that's not me. I'm quoting her, right? That's not me saying it. But you can just feel the audience turn on me, you know? And, And I had offered it up as proof, you know, just because I was talking about how times change, you know, and how what we think of as funny changes but that happens every now and then i'm on this book tour now right so on a book tour the lights don't go down you're just standing in a lit room and i hate seeing the audience right when i'm on a lecture tour i can't see a thing the house is completely black and there are bright lights in my eyes and i love it that way right and i think the audience likes it because i can't see them right so they don't have to worry that they're going to hurt my feelings. When I can see the audience on a book tour, they all have that rictus, a forced smile on their face because on the off chance I look at them, they want me to know that they're having a good time. Even if they're not, you know, they're just being polite. But in a dark room, that goes away. And you can just sit there and you don't have to laugh because my feelings will be hurt if you're not. And you can laugh at stuff that maybe you wouldn't laugh at it's a lights world. I mean, I said to an audience, I did three shows at Town Hall recently. And I said, you know, I'm going to imagine that most of you tonight would define yourself as progressive. I'm going to guess that 99% of you voted the same way I did. You're educated. Majority of you went to college, if not graduate school. And here's what you laughed at hardest. Handicapped child being dismembered. A man getting raped in the ass with a Sprite bottle. I mean, I had a list right there of all the things they'd laughed at the hardest. And they were horrified, you know, they were horrified. Because if you had said to them before, do you think rape jokes are funny? They'd be absolutely not, not under any circumstances. But they howled at it. And what I like about that is that so many editors now, especially in magazines, won't let you get away with anything right but i've got proof you know that the audience laughs at that stuff you know i mean again it's in context 
you know, if I were to take these laugh lines out of context, people wouldn't laugh, but they're part of a broader story. And it makes sense, you know, and it fits in and there's a buildup to it. And there's a downside, you know, there's a path leading up to it and there's a path leading the way. So it's good to know that, right? Because it's so hard to get anything into a publication anymore, you know, like into a newspaper or a magazine. It's good to know that you can put it in a book or you can deliver it on stage and people actually appreciate it. They don't need to be protected from it. And yeah, you know, you might get some complaints, but people complain about everything. You know, a lot of times it's so petty. You can't even predict it. So there's no point in trying to dance around it. Twitter is everyone's editor now is Twitter, but I'm not on Twitter, so it's not mine. Well, it seems, you know, with your writing, it's not just about the humor, right? There's a lot of meaning behind it and feels like maybe that's one thing that you have that a uh, maybe a stand-up comic doesn't is the time and ability to, you know, make people care about these characters, even if there are funny lines along the way, you know, it often ends on a very meaningful note. So maybe perhaps that's part of it <laughs> gives you a little bit of a, you know, leeway that, that maybe a stand-up comic doesn't have. You know, you're reading off a page and that's different. If you go to a comedy club, I think people are like, I haven't laughed in 15 seconds. This person sucks, right? But if you were to reading, and there aren't any expectations that go with it. I mean, if people are bored, then yeah, there's a problem. But the expectations put upon me are different than the expectations put on a comedian. And you're right, I'm telling a longer story. And again, that it's having a piece of paper in your hand. It's reading off of a piece of paper. I mean, when you think about Chris Rock, right? What if he was reading everything off a piece of paper? It would be just completely different. I don't have that energy, you know, that kind of, how's everybody doing tonight? You know, I'm not prowling back and forth. I'm just standing behind a podium. It couldn't be dollar. But I've been offered before, you know, to memorize my material and let's shape it into an evening and let's do this and that. But I have zero interest in that. I don't want to be in people's faces. I want to challenge them. I, I, I mean, challenge them like with my presence or challenge them by asking them a question or, you know, even if it's how's everybody doing tonight? Like it just changes the energy of the room. A lot of times I invite people to open for me, right? Like, I don't know, I met this kid. I was signing books a few weeks ago and he was, a, I don't know, 15 years old. And we got to talking and he's writing flash fiction in school. And he really enjoys it. And he wanted to be a writer. And I said, well, do you have any of it on your phone? And he said, yes. And I said, well, pick something out. And then five minutes, meet me back here. Because you're going to open for me tonight, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, of course, the audience, you know, it's a teenager. They're going to, you know, super, super patient and super nice to the teenager. And the teenager did a, a wonderful job, right? But one time I invited somebody who does comedy to open for me. And then I just felt like I needed to fumigate the stage afterwards. Not that he was bad. It was just that energy, you know, how's everybody doing tonight? And I can't hear you. It just didn't fit in with what I was going to be doing. Is there anything in your creative process that you used to do and realized, all right, this isn't working out for me. I need to change things the way that you, you approach your work. Well, when I think back again about when I very first started out, 
I would read something once. And then if I had another reading coming up in three weeks, I would write something brand new and read it there, right? So therefore, like a lot of the essays, the stories rather in Feral Fever, my first book, it only been read on stage once. And that's really good when you're stacking the pages up. And if you have a reading, you know, once a month or once every three weeks. But then when I started going on these long tours, like I'll go to 42 cities in 43 days, then I do read the same thing. Not every night, but I mean, I read these essays over and over because you have to read them out loud more than once. I mean, it can take 10 times just to learn how to read it. I had a just finished this 42 city tour and I had a week off. So I wrote two new essays that I've been reading on my book tour. And every day I make changes to them. And I'll read them out loud and something will occur to me and I'll make notes on the page and then, you know, give it a try the next night. But again, because I'm, I'm going to a city at night, like trying to write something brand new to read tonight, that's not enough time, you know, like for me to write something brand new to read tonight. I mean, it happens every now and then, but I can't sustain that. You know, sometimes I have interviews and I have planes and I have, you know, I have other crazy stuff. I, you know, I still have to walk 10 miles a day and I still have to do all this German lessons. And it's not like I'm trying to make excuses for myself. But what, when I look back at what's really weak in my older books, things that are weak are things that I have read again and again and again and honestly improved to the extent that I could improve them. Do you ever draw or, or sketch or doodle in your journal as part of what your process? No, I did when I was younger. Mm. I save all my doodling for book signings now. I'm constantly looking for new things. I just settled on, I just started drawing campsites in people's books. You know, like I draw a tent and then I draw trees and sometimes I draw an angry sky or sometimes <laughs> a, a night sky. I got these markers. I was pretty pleased with myself, you know, drawing like, I can't do it for everybody, but the new thing for me is drawing a campsite. And I say to people, you're going to lose everything. And this is where you're going to want, <laughs> this is where you're going to wind up living. <laughs> David, I love that you're always, you're always looking for something new. Like you just mentioned that you walk 10 miles a day, like learning French, learning German, like you're just like on a constant growth path. What's that about for you? Well, both of the walking thing and, I mean, I always walked a lot because I never learned how to drive a car. So I, I met somebody with a Fitbit, I don't know, maybe it was like seven or eight years ago now. And that just completely changed my life, right? I mean, I walk 10 miles a day when I'm on tour. When I'm at home, I walk between 18 and 22 miles a day. And then someone got me started last summer on this Duolingo. And it was fine for a while. You know, it just is another compulsion, right? And I never know where the next one's going to come from. You know, for a while, it was feeding spiders was a compulsion, right? <laughs> I mean, it was a full out, flat out, had to do it, catching flies all day, charts and which spiders were in which parts of the house and their feeding times and, you know, catching flies and crickets and just in the yard looking for insects and became my entire life, right, when we were living in Normandy. And so I just never know what's next. And I suppose it keeps life interesting because you don't know what the next thing might be. 
I didn't see this Duolingo thing coming, you know, but I didn't see the Fitbit coming either. I know writing is different for different people, but for me, it's a compulsion. I don't do it because I long to contribute. I don't do it because I have something to say. I don't have anything to say. I do it just because I'm compelled to. I do it because of the same reason I I have to do 200 sit-ups and push-ups every day. I have to, or the world will spin off of its access. <laughs> you know, and somebody said to me a while ago, you do know you're doing all those wrong, don't you? And I'm like, <laughs> shut up. Don't it? It's, just not, it's not about doing it right. It's just about doing it. The right way always hurts so much more. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> David, um, this has been a, a real super treat. Uh, I mean, I've loved your work for probably 20 plus years. And But before we let you go, are there any writers right now that are really inspiring you? Or it could, doesn't have to be books. It could be shows or whatever, but anything that's inspiring you at the moment. You know what I love recently is I love that show Somebody Somewhere <laughs> on HBO. It's such a good portrayal of friendship. It's a half hour show. And just the cast is just fantastic. But Lisa Crone wrote a number of the episodes. And Lisa Crone was with a group called the Five Lesbian Brothers. And their shows were just really, just real journeys, you know, and just really funny. They went places you just didn't expect. And she's had such a nice career. It's been so nice to watch her career. And she's written a number of these episodes of Somebody Somewhere. And... They're just really funny and beautiful and just not really like anything else that's on TV right now. And writing-wise, Susan Orlean wrote a book called um, On Animals. And, and she wouldn't call herself a comic essayist, but I laughed at every one of those essays. And I laughed because... You know, like one of the books had the line in it. What did you use for toenails, Don? Maybe I have the name wrong and it's not Don. But it was about a taxidermy competition. And this guy made a panda by sewing two black bears together. Like one of them, he bleached white. And then he he created a, a panda and he won this taxidermy competition. And somebody said, what did you use for toenails? And it just made me so happy that I was reading a book that had that line in it. That there's a world where somebody asked a question, what did you use for toenails? I always thought it was Don DeLillo who said this, but it was Chuck Close who said, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. But there was something kind of inspiring about the Susan Orlean essays, just because it reminded me to listen to people, I suppose. Every now and then, somebody will say something and it's just not a word I expected to hear that day, right? Or I'll hear somebody ask a question, and it's just so delightful because you just didn't expect. It's like, what did you use for toenails? You just didn't expect ever to hear that. So, yeah, Susan Orlean, everything she writes is good. But this essay collection, I recommended it on my lecture tour that I just went on. And I would read out loud from it every night. It's the kind of book you can just open randomly and read out loud and it's beautiful and funny and interesting. David, it's been such a great conversation. I just want to say like, I'm so glad that you're in the world because I greatly enjoy everything you put out. I greatly enjoy your honesty and 
it's a joy to read your work. Thank you so much for joining us on the Design Better podcast. Oh, gosh. Well, thank you. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have? How could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you. To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetterpodcast.com. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.